Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to be exploring the complicated relationship between publishers and big tech platforms, why this affects digital news outlets the most, and how this shapes the bigger picture of sustainable funding of public interest news globally. Now, there's been a lot of friction in recent weeks with mass layoffs and disruptive overhauls at Twitter and Meta. Google has also been in the news for the wrong reasons, paying out a record $391.5 million multi-state privacy settlement over in the US. The trouble is, it's not so easy to stage an exodus of users from these platforms when we don't like the terms. But for many digital and public interest news outlets, these platforms are an essential part of their editorial efforts and a crucial line of resourcing and support. We're speaking today with Samir Padania, lead consultant of Macroscope, an independent company supporting innovation in journalism, human rights and philanthropy. Samir has also worked with a number of grant-making organisations in journalism, such as Nesta, the Google News Initiative and Open Society. We're going to be chewing over how digital newsrooms can protect themselves in these times of disruption. All of that's coming up, so don't go anywhere. Samir, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking. I understand a little known fact about you, Samir, is that when you were little, you wanted to change your name to Elizabeth. Tell us the story. Yeah, I was coming out of school I must have been about five or six and my mum asked me you know why are you in a in a mood you know you seem a bit down what's wrong and I I wouldn't tell her and then eventually she got me to open up and it's because I said I don't like my name anymore I want a new one and uh it's because the other kids at school were making fun of my name um and so I she said well what name do you want then and I said well Elizabeth and she said well why is that and I said well because it's the most English name I can think of because it's the Queen's name so then after a while uh, after a bit you know she and other people called me Betty for a bit but uh, that didn't stick thank god how long how long did you go by Betty for N- not long not long I, I think I think the novelty wore off <laughs> and you went back to Samir and, and the rest was history the rest is indeed history although actually when um my colleagues in so I well, 20 years ago used to work a lot in eastern africa and my colleagues got wind of this story somehow and so they then called me zabetti uh, which is what they would call the queen Mm. so uh, i was then you know in in a work context known as zabetti for quite a long time but only in in uh, kenya and uganda there you go great story thanks for sharing samir it's been a crazy couple of weeks really in the worlds of social media and platforms and publishers um and hopefully today we're going to make it make sense of quite a few of the things that have happened and explore this, I think they call it frenemy relationship between publishers and platforms. Um, but, you know, I'd like to start really with uh, the question, how can platforms actually be a force for good for the news industry, um, particularly for digital media startups, which cannot necessarily uh, rely on philanthropic or government money? And we're talking here not just in a US setting, but, you know, globally, of course. A lot of my work, most of my career I've spent working in in Latin America and Africa, across all parts of Africa, you know, large parts of Asia. In all of those places, the platforms have been, in some ways for sort of digital media startups, a force for good in the sense that they've opened up opportunities, they've reduced the barriers to entry, they've permitted 
people to publish, to create and publish journalism that reaches audiences in, in a variety of ways that is very, very powerful and very important, you know, important for, you know, in general, but also very important for the public interest, for investigative journalism, for marginalized communities, underserved communities, and all of that. In the macro, that's been like a net good, right? And what's interesting is that a lot of, in the work that I've done recently, so in last year, there was a report from Sembra Media, which is a, um, a regional expert organization intermediary that works with the digital media startup ecosystem in, in Latin America for, for journalism and media. And they did some analysis in a report that's called Inflection Point International, partly about this relationship. And actually, what's interesting in, in that region, and also they, they did you know, this this research was in four countries in Latin America, four in sub-Saharan Africa, and four in um, Southeast Asia. They found that the relationship between those startups and the platforms was actually quite positive. You know, they've grown up as digital natives intertwined with the platforms. And then what's happened is over the years, they've offered funding at times. During COVID, they were the quickest and the most consistent and most widespread to offer emergency relief to loads of different media startups and so on. And they've made efforts to try and strengthen the ecosystem in some way. So, you know, there are, from their perspective, many positives to that, particularly when you set it against things like government funding, um, which is seen as sort of in many places, hopelessly compromised or something that if you were independent, you would never ever take or sometimes even philanthropic funding, which sometimes can come with strings, right? And just to really emphasize that point, because it's really important in parts of the world that we're talking about here, South America, um, especially government money does come with those strings because it's very hard to criticize the government if you're reliant on their funding. The moment, you know, they come under fire, they can essentially turn the taps off. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing that in lots of societies around the world, government advertising is a really significant source of revenue for media organisations. The challenge is how independent and how transparent and how properly governed and uh, equitable that is. You know, it, it, And in some places it's really well regulated, it's very transparent, but in some countries it's used really as a tool to reward the lapdogs, if you like, and punish watchdogs, right? So people who are sort of scrutinizing government or are beyond government control or, you know, won't play ball, you know, have it withheld and people who are compliant and, and generally don't go where the government doesn't want them to go. Um, that, that happens a lot. And I think one of the challenges and some of the work I've been doing recently, what it points up is actually this really, really affects sort of digital media in, in the across the world in in a couple of ways one is that they are often left out because they're newer players you know they're large online audiences but they're not part of the existing measurement ecosystem you know how do you decide who is a big player in this industry so you know they know what the circulation figures are or were for newspapers but they don't really know how to play that off against and how significant it is to have digital media and then there's a second dimension to that which is that Capital city media often do really well, but when you go outside, you go into where local government holds the purse strings, then it can be tricky, right? Because you're further from center of power, you're a bit more alone, there are fewer media out there. And actually the power relationships, it's, hard, it's harder to say no, it's harder to push back. 
And so that's feedback that we've, you know, I've seen in the research and from, from a range of different people that I'm talking to, that for sort of rural media, you know, second city, third city, small town media, it's much harder, you know, it's a much harder economic outlook when they're dealing with government money. Big tech support for the news industry has been welcome over the years, and there's been a proliferation of different schemes. Meta, formerly known as Facebook, funds the community news project managed by the NCTJ in the UK, which pays for a reporter in a community newsroom. Google, too, has rolled out international schemes like the News Equity Fund, the Local News Experiment Project, or the YouTube Creator Programme, just to name a few. On face value, there's a lot of support out there for what is often called a strained relationship between publishers and platforms. Samir has previously worked as a grant maker in the second round of the Google News Initiative's Innovation Fund in Europe. He says that the tech giant's motives for supporting the news have always been genuine. It's involved stakeholders who have the best intentions for the news industry, and they've led with the best practices, using independent assessors, preventing interference from Google, having an open call system. The issue is that all of this pales in comparison to some of its less flattering outgoings. Google has just paid a record $391 million privacy settlement to multiple US states this week because it was found to track the location of users who opted out of location services on their devices. You know, this one settlement was $391 million, right? The entire digital news initiative uh, funding for that three-year period, which was, I think, 2016 to 2019, was €150 million. Euros. And that was the entire digital news ecosystem of Europe. And I know that they've continued with sort of news innovation challenges and, and other things. But, you know, it, I think it sets it in context that the transparency, if you like, of the things that they do as companies that that get them into trouble versus maybe a slightly less sort of transparent relationship with the news industry. When you put it in the context of the relationships that they're having around regulation, so the news bargaining code in Australia and how different countries, kind of Canada, US, UK, etc., are looking at different versions of that, even Indonesia. Some people read it from a, a less generous angle, and I've certainly, you know, at times looked at it from this angle, where while the, the sort of, if you like, the unit, the, the team, the Google News Initiative, and the way it's staffed and structured and, and the rhetoric around it is very positive, and the benefits to the ecosystem are real, at the same time, it performs a second role, which is in the broader ecosystem, how a, a large corporation like that is able to portray the public benefit it brings and to try and forestall regulation to, or to try and take the edge off it or to demonstrate to, for example, the Competition and Markets Authority that they are contributing to the news ecosystem and therefore perhaps the settlement that they come to should be a little bit softer. Um, you know, and you you also set that alongside the kind of lobbying money that they spend in Brussels and in Washington and and, and so on and so forth. I think you know sometimes to me I, I feel it would be possibly simpler that they just they just sort of carved off a billion and said we're going to endow a massive fund for journalism and will that keep you all quiet? You know, I mean, there's there's a sort of sense in which it could be a lot simpler, right? Would it be would it be fair to say, for instance, that their support for the news industry has felt more like a peace offering? Because you look at the news bargaining code and the way that the Google and Facebook have uh, conceded really defeat on that one, uh, and how they've you know now struck so many content deals in Australia, it feels like they're they're paying that out to keep keep them happy now. Compared to the situation they were in, where they were turning the lights off for news organisations on the platform, it's very much it feels um, just trying to keep people happy and keep certainly the PR side happy. 
I think the important thing in those relationships, you know, I, I worked as the, I served as the lead rapporteur for the Forum on Information and Democracy last year. You know, this was a sort of global report that looked at the sustainability of journalism globally. And it looked at lots of different aspects of how you, you know, how journalism can be funded from government funding to platform funding, to philanthropic, to investment, you know, uh, tax benefits and initiative. You know, it was a, it was a very wide ranging um, report and it, it was sort of a global thing, but we tried to offer very high level principles on how some of these relationships could be better governed. So we looked particularly at things like competition law, because, you know, like you say, the news bargaining code did have an effect. It forced the platforms to the table in a way. But it didn't force them in a way in Australia that made them more accountable. What it did was push them into a position where they were able to make deals, kind of sweetheart deals, if you like, in a way with with a bunch of different rich media companies. And then, you know, SBS, for example, which is the one that's kind of most committed to diversity of multicultural coverage in, in Australia, I think was left out of the original set of deals, right? You know, so these curious decisions happen. The the smaller independent local publishers were left out. And then there was some funding that I think went in to create an association so that they could collectively engage with the news industry. And so it had lots of lessons for everybody. And the sort of report we came out with had at the heart, you know, was sort of saying to the regulators that are doing this, yes, part of this is to is to sort of bring the platforms to the table but ultimately the benefit of bringing them to the table is that you're able then to try and extract some value for the public interest and i think that that's one of the big challenges that industries in in lots of countries where this is happening face um where you've got companies that are being you know that can have direct conversations with google and facebook and can come to a settlement you know what one of the discussions that's happening in australia right now is with meta you know removing itself from the industry in some ways what implications does that have for the deals and how long were the deals that they struck you know are they one year three year five year deals you know and what what happens after that there's a sort of cliff edge right so what the regulators have the chance to do potentially is to have a bit more structural support and to look at it as it's our national ecosystem and that ecosystem yes of course includes big companies at the national level but it also includes very very small hyper local publishers it includes town newspapers digital media that cover a particular postcode um you know cooperatives and so on you know and and i think that we have to look personally i would i would you know advocate that the cma and the digital markets unit and so on that they they look you know a sort of success metric is not just you know were big big deals struck between the platforms and the big companies but actually is there an outcome for the fabric of communication and information and journalism across the country reading between the lines platforms money is needed for different reasons in different news ecosystems it's proved to be a crucial alternative revenue source for digital news organizations to maintain independence but it also gives startups the resources and breathing room they need to develop their companies in the early stages. The problem comes when startups become too dependent on platforms and the rug is pulled from beneath them, either when funding is closed, news teams are diminished, or overhauls to the platforms disrupt their operations. And that should be ringing some bells. Musk's takeover of Twitter has been wrought with controversy, chiefly widespread layoffs to important teams and catastrophic changes to the verification system. 
By bundling blue ticks in with a paid-for subscription to Twitter Blue, it has priced out many legitimate journalists and news organisations and caused a flood of impersonators, undermining trust and credibility of users, which matters a lot to news organisations. A lot of startups, news organisations in, let's say, um, Latin America and Africa, how they how they experience the relationship with the platform is that, yes, there is this sort of news ecosystem funding and so on. But on the other hand, you've got, if you've got a practical problem, let's say you want to get verified, right? So being verified is very important, you know, and, and we can come to what, what that means in a Twitter context, you know, you know, a month ago, it still meant something. Now it's in terrible flux, right? You could see that being verified, whether it's on you know, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or, you know, whatever platform, that sort of mark of this is a verified organization and we're, you know, we're prepared to say, you know, give it a check mark or whatever, whatever form it takes on whichever platform. It matters to them because it, one, users look and they can see that it's got a status. Two, advertisers look and they are more likely to advertise with an organization that's got that status and give it preferential rates at times. Um, as far as I understand, in some of the sort of online advertising arrangements, being verified gives you access to different ad rates. Plus, being being verified means that let's say you have an issue with content takedown. Somebody, you know, as happens to a lot of news organizations, a lot of journalists, you know, there's malicious takedown requests. Somebody objects because they're in power or because they just don't quite like what you've said about them. They submit a takedown request it's problematic. And then on top of which for individual journalists, like, you know, people who are of minority community or they're women journalists, um, they face disproportionate harassment. Being verified on those platforms allows them to screen out a lot of trollish and harassment oriented users and, and so on. And it also gives them a layer where they can, you know, they have access potentially to support. So, you know, even something as small as as that, and the way it's treated quite arbitrarily, and the and the and the way in which you access that is really difficult. So, for, you know, e even in the UK, it's hard to work out who is verified and why. If you think about that in Kenya, Ghana, Peru, you know, where they don't have huge teams who are dealing with these things in those countries, and they don't prioritize it, even though these you know large swathes of the media ecosystem are dependent on these companies and really rely on the ability to have to be verified to have you know that sort of status give them access to all these benefits they don't have anyone in the companies to talk to and now with the layoffs that's even more difficult when we think about the changes that musk has introduced in the early days of his time at the platform just how disruptive um, is that going to be for news organizations particularly thinking about the uh, verification system there um, just how much is that going to exacerbate the situation? You know, it's trust level, right? It's Liz trust level catastrophe. I mean, if I can, you know, it's that bad. I mean, they knew, right? I didn't read the whole sort of memo, but there was a memo, I think, by the trust and safety team that was put out that was sent to them, you know, before and said, here are the ramifications if you do this. So they knew what would happen. And the internal teams had modeled out, you know, it's all well known. So I just... It's a terrible, terrible situation. And, and I think particularly because the journalistic ecosystem is so intertwined with Twitter in many places that it's it's a really, I don't think we fully understand what's going to happen. Also, 
you know, every three hours, he seems to change policy anyway. So it's sort of, it's extremely problematic. And I think the fact that they've cut many, many staff, they've cut teams, the human rights team, you know, curation team. Content moderation team too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a whole slew of um, staff have gone. It's, re it's, really, it's really depressing because I think, you know, it's the, it's the sunk cost fallacy, isn't it? Everybody's invested in this platform and hoping in some form that there'll be, you know, that it, it's worth staying there and that there's a value to staying there. But at the same time, there isn't an easy alternative. I mean, is everyone going to wholesale move to LinkedIn now? You know, it's like, you know, that seems a relatively stable and, you know, kind of boring and, and sort of uncontroversial platform. <laughs> well, we'll we'll come back to LinkedIn, but uh, I'd like to direct our focus really to Meta for a second, who've also announced widespread job layoffs, which look to um, signal the withdrawal of their support for the local news sector in particular. Um, what kind of a trickle down effect do you think that will have? You know, they've been signaling it for a while. You know, people in the US in that part of the ecosystem have, have sort of known that this was on the writing was on the wall a while ago. And again, it's bound up with these regulatory issues and it's bound up with the bad publicity that Meta Facebook has sort of, you know, just seems an absolute magnet for. You mean you mean post news bargaining code? Um, regulatory wise, yeah, you know, but also it's, you know, the companies are different, you know, we can't treat them as a monolith. One example, about 10 years ago, I was um, hired to run a private convening looking at the impact of facial recognition on platforms and uh, sharing of, of um, visual media on social media platforms, on even in Skype and things like that. So I, I pulled together a convening of um, Yahoo, Skype, Google, YouTube, you know, a bunch of different platforms. And Facebook were there. In all of the other companies, the policy people came, you know, they brought an engineer and explained, you know, the interactions internally. They sort of said, well, there's a balance between engineering and what, you know, policy and regulation and law allow us to do. And so we're constantly thinking about that and we're trying to understand where facial recognition fits in. When it came to Facebook, they said, look, it's an engineering led company. And so that is the key to how we work. And yes, the policy is sort of important, but ultimately we will, you know, engineer first and then decide how, what the fallout is later. And I think that that has set the tone for how Facebook has done things in all areas. And I think it's also, it's been true of their interactions with uh, the news and media industry as well. And I think that that has been especially problematic in, you know, societies where they've sort of messed with newsfeed, you know, and they've sort of turned off newsfeed in election periods and all sorts of extraordinary things that they've done over the years, I think mean that the context of the work that Facebook has done and Meta has done to support the news industry, while it's been important as a sort of tangible source of support, I think the fact that they've sort of cut and pulled all of these things so, you know, relatively quickly, I think shows you the sort of level of commitment at the heart of that company there is to the news and media industry and the, and the way in which they look at it. For the digital media startups in this very precarious landscape, what should their mentality be right now, thinking about the fact that platforms can change in the blink of an eye, the rug can be pulled from beneath you? 
that's a precarious position to be in. So what should they be thinking about? You're right. It is a precarious position that they're in. And the direction in which I am moving, and this is part of a project that I'm doing in the UK, actually, is part of trying to build a bit of a mindset shift. You know, 10, 15 years ago, the, the emphasis talking to, you know, media startups, news organizations was about skills. You know, you've got to change your skills. You've got to do things differently. Journalism needs to change. Um, you know, you need to adapt to the new environment. You need to, you know, write differently and all of that kind of stuff. I think there's been a, a shift in recent years globally and understanding that actually news and media organizations are businesses and that the business and organizational resilience of those organizations, those news media organizations, those outlets, those startups is absolutely paramount, making sure that they're balanced in a business sense that they have, uh, you know, a, you know, something as basic as a finance person, um, that, you know, people inside the organization, you know, of course, there's a little bit of this when you're bootstrapping at the beginning, you know, that you have to do multiple roles, but you do have specialists doing roles. The, the Sembra Media research I mentioned earlier, you know, they established a kind of correlation between having a dedicated tech member of staff and an increase in revenue, right? As well as, you know, independently of whether you have sales staff or not. So, you know, there are all these sorts of things that I think in recent years have come in, but what that's done is put a lot of emphasis on the responsibility of the organizations themselves, right? People really, really want to do this job and it's a public service and it's a part of democracy. How that gets funded shouldn't only be on the shoulders of the organizations themselves or indeed actually of philanthropies or of the platforms, right? I think they all have a big part to play and they, they have capital. This is something that a lot of local and community level organisations do want to do, develop their own memberships and reader revenue systems, but they often simply lack the resources, infrastructure or expertise to do so. And that's the key barrier that stops them from controlling their own destiny, as is the essence of Samir's advice. The US local news sector is leading the way internationally because big tech platforms are based in the country and they're more able to gear support for domestic news outlets. There are also plenty of intermediary organisations that help news publishers to develop their own business models. And that's something sorely lacking in the UK. Samir suggests that rather than creating schemes which fund specific news organisations, platforms could fund intermediary bodies which can do specific work across the news sector. One of the things that's a bit odd about the relationship between the platforms and the media is that a lot of the terms are set in the US. So the platforms are all based in the US. The money comes from the US, like a large proportion of it. In the US, you also have a tax status that allows you to be nonprofits and all of that. And around that, a huge philanthropic ecosystem has built up, right? You know, I think it's the head of the American Journalism Project has, has written a piece about news and support, you know, innovation in local media. In one paragraph, she talks about three different US cities. You know, one is like Wichita in Kansas. Between those three cities, there's $71 million mentioned from local philanthropy in those three places. That is like half of what Google put into the entirety of the news ecosystem of Europe in three years, right? And what they have in that ecosystem is they have exactly as you say, they have the News Revenue Hub, they have Lion Publishers, they have Tiny News Collective, they have the National Trust for Local News, they have this, that and the other infrastructure organisations in between the industry, this kind of growing kind of local and public interest and non-profit news industry. And they have the INN as well, the Institute for Nonprofit News. 
and and the funders so the funders can give those both give money direct to the industry to the journalism people and they can give money to the infrastructure bits so that they help build policy practices they do advocacy they do all the stuff that the newsroom shouldn't be doing you know newsrooms should be focused on doing their journalism right really and, and building their businesses and so on they shouldn't be focused on legislation and all of those other things of course they come in when they need to but you need an infrastructure layer that does that in the uk we don't have it it's ad hoc it's um you know pinf public interest news foundation impress um icnn a little bit you've got ima the independent media association you've got public interest working group in scotland which was a short-term working group very clearly a short-term working group you've got a public interest uh, working group in wales there's nothing of that ilk in northern ireland after Cairncross, the idea was that this country would go, okay, we need to look at the infrastructure of exactly as you're saying, you know, how does this actually, how do we structure this space so that it's a, a long-term play, a long-term investment in how we function? Whereas funding funding currently feels like stop gaps and plugging holes until newsrooms can hopefully figure it out themselves, reach break-even, reach profitability, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, there's an, there's an overwhelming, I think, actually it comes from the government, really. It's an overwhelming faith in the market. There's sort of a little bit of sort of, well, yes, there there is a volunteer media, there's community media, and then there's a bit of, um, there's a bit of this sort of people blogging in their pyjamas, you know, and they earn some money. And it's that sort of the way that they look at sort of hyper-locals is, is still, I think, in that frame. Whereas actually, the reality is that they... You know, there are these incredibly committed, you know, the, the sort of member organizations of PINF, ICNN and so on. They're the ones who are trying desperately to kind of cover these, you know, I don't want to call them news deserts necessarily, because I think that's not always a helpful, helpful framing. But it is, you know, it expresses something. It's something's being lost. It's empty. It's not there. And I think that that in the UK is completely undervalued. You know, when the work that I've done for most of my career is exactly that. I worked for media development organisations, which would go in to a country in and would help try and strengthen the sector. It's not just individual news organisations, but it's the sector. It's people who do legal defence. It's people who do freedom of information. It's, you know, funding organisations. It's this, that and the other. And we, in, in this country, we have never had that because we always thought, oh, we're all right. You know, you can see that there are parts of the ecosystem that are beginning to get okay journalism and media it's not just a sort of nice to have it's an absolutely essential piece of how we live and how we understand the world around us and how we keep ourselves honest as a society you know samir thank you so much for jumping on the podcast this week it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you thank you likewise thanks again now there's a lot to consider here for big tech platforms, if they do want to be a force for good in journalism, they need to support the sector without encouraging newsrooms to be over-reliant on them. For digital newsrooms, take their support with a pinch of salt. It may not have the strings attached compared to other funding sources, but remember that they are a tech platform primarily, not a news platform. But what did you learn today? And what's been your experience with all the chaos that's been unfolding around Twitter, Meta and Google? DM or tweet me at JPG Journalism or my team at journalism.co.uk at journalism news. If you'd like to feature on the show or you've got a topic or story you want us to cover on the podcast, do get in touch. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. And finally, if you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching 
and subscribing to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. That way, you won't miss our next exciting episode. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.